Welcome to Adulting on the Spectrum. I am Andrew Comero, an autistic certified financial planner. I co-run Adulting on the Spectrum with my host, Eileen Lamb. Hey, Eileen. Hey, everyone. In this podcast, we want to highlight real voices of autistic adults, not just inspirational stories, but people like us talking about their day-to-day life. Basically, we want to give a voice to people uh, like us. Today, our guest is Taylor Robb, not Rob Taylor. Uh, is an autism self-advocate who's been active in the pursuit of autism equality for nearly a decade. His advocacy has ranged from helping families cope and understand their children's autism to holding positions on state government committees concerning disabilities. He has also worked in the behavioral health field as a behavioral technician for the last four and a half years and has been pursuing his BCBA requirements over the past year. Hey, Taylor, thanks for joining us today. I, uh, I want to ask you before we start if you have any preference as far as uh, identity language goes. And by, what I mean by that is, do you like person with autism better, autistic person, um, any preference about this type of language and also what are your preferred pronouns? Firstly, I want to say thank you both for having me on. It's a pleasure and an honor to be on this podcast. Um, in terms of autistic specific language, I'm good with whatever term, whatever title, whatever honorific or pronoun you want to go with. And for personal pronouns, he, him is just fine. Sounds good. When were you diagnosed with autism? What was the process like? You mentioned being an advocate for about a, a decade or so. So that is actually a very interesting question that has quite a long story behind it, but I'll make it short and sweet. Um, so I was diagnosed at the age, somewhere between the ages of three and four. Um, it had come along when my parents noticed that, typically speaking, I was not at the right rate of speech. My speech patterns were very, very minimum compared to my peers, um, especially in the classroom setting. And they went and had me diagnosed and bada bing, bada boom, I was diagnosed with um, about medium to low range on the autistic spectrum. Um, And for many years of my life, actually, I fought both the label and identity of autism and even further fought any sort of involvement, any sort of interaction, any sort of nudge to get me to be involved with other people with autism or other autistic courses, um, causes, purely out of, I really don't know how to exactly describe it, either a missense placed of not belonging, uh, not feeling an odence to any of the, to the community at large or any um, people with autism in general, regardless of how far along I had progressed on the spectrum or the advances I had made personally or the leaps and bounds and growth that I had experienced throughout my life. I just for many, many, many years fought against it until I went and studied abroad in Morocco for about a year from 2013 through 2014. And upon returning from that, uh, from studying abroad, um, I became more open uh, um, to engaging and to having a dialogue with the autistic community. And from there, that's when I started having my uh, journey. What What made you feel disconnected? Yeah. 
Honestly, if, if I had to pinpoint exactly thinking about things in retrospect, it probably had to do with the fact that I really grew up with little to no interaction with the autistic community, barely any knowledge that there was one out there, or really just a sense of self-imposed isolation um, in the sense that I, if, if it didn't immediately concern me, I didn't want to be concerned with it. Did anyone in your life make you feel bad about having autism, being autistic? I mean, I, I did suffer the, the typical bullying that was pervasive, especially around the, the 90s. Um, and even in my middle school and somewhat in my high school years. But ultimately, um, and I don't know whether or not that fed into um, that sense of isolation or that pushback against being involved or being engaged. Um, I wouldn't say so, mostly because during that time, I did not have a good sense of what it meant to be autistic or even what autism was or how it even related to me. So by and large, I wouldn't say that there was any sort of environmental or social reasons that pushed me against wanting to be involved other than I just didn't feel the need to. Did you receive an ABA as a kid? I did, actually, as I often say in speeches I give on when, I when I'm requested to join panels or when I go and give speeches at conferences and things like that. I often say that um, when I received ABA services, that was during the wild, wild west times of uh, what ABA services was. That was before um, the, B, the BACB was founded before there was something called common practice in behavioral health terminology. And it was still very much, states didn't really regulate it. People were allowed to do whatever they wanted to do as long as they had evidence to back it up. So, and I actually moved around a lot, both from state to state, but also even within states. So the services I received were not just simply very inconsistent. They ranged dramatically between what I received, like whether it was the handwriting, um, whether it was any sort of behavioral involvement, whether it was behavioral reduction redu um, and things of that nature. It really, really varied a lot and just kind of go to show just how different things are now versus what how they were. What what made you want to become a, a BCBA? So honestly, I think that has quite a bit to do with just um, uh, both a little bit of pushing from from my family, but also just a little bit of divine intervention and just a little bit of 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 pushing pushing from forces beyond my beyond my control and my comprehension. Um, honestly speaking, my undergrad was in political science. That's what I ultimately wanted to do. But then when I was looking into pursue my education even farther, when I was looking at master's degrees, I coincidentally saw that there was a master's of education that specialized in autism, that specialized in special education. And I thought, huh, that's interesting. Let's give that a try. And two years later, there I was sitting with my fancy bit of piece of paper. So ultimately that's like sort of, as I progressed along my journey, as I became more involved with engagement in 
the autism community, both from a self-advocate standpoint, but also the more I became to understand my own journey and self and self-reflect on my own journey, that's when I saw that this was a direct this was a natural direction for me to go. You know, a lot of people on social media would tell you that you have a self-internalized ableism uh, because you chose to to be an ABA therapist and BCBA. What do you think about that? Uh, they may have a point. Sadly, my degree is not in psychology, so I cannot accurately or adequately refute that as I would like to. But I would definitely say that my choices are my choices. Now, whether or not there was some subconscious or Freudian uh, angle to that, well, there may or there may not be. But I can only say that I saw the path laid before me and I saw that that was the path best suited to be walked. I like your answer. Um, and for the record, we're, I mean, at least I am very pro-ABA and I, you know, it's changed uh, my... Eileen, my I had no idea. No really? idea at all. Yeah, I, I mean, go. have you ever spoken about that before? Not much. You know, I'm coming out about my views on ABA tonight. Uh, <laughs> no, we, yeah. should add a, we should add a sarcasm, like, subtitle in the video. <laughs> that is actually a really great accessibility trait. I'm mentioning this for when Eileen edits it. Add something like sarcasm. sarcasm. And just put it, like, as a stamp on my head. Right. Put it in post. Yeah. Put it in post. yeah. So. Uh, yeah. No, I, I, uh, I love that uh, we have some people who are pro ABA. I mean, we've mm -hmm. had people against ABA. We've had pro ABA people. But like your, your story is so cool because you had ABA as a kid. You're autistic and you still wanted to do this. You know, it's it's awesome. Well, to quickly just very ever so slightly touch on that point about the the two sides to this ever-growing conflict, not ju just simply on social media, but you'll actually find if you go, depending on where you go, not just simply in the U.S., but around the world, you will actually find people, at least pre-COVID, pre-COVID, you would find people striking and protesting outside of uh, ABA clinics and things like that. And in the last couple of years, most of the time when I'm being asked to come on and speak onto a panel, it's actually for the almost exclusively for the purpose of pushing back against that, against that mentality, because they, because um, a lot of people I network with, a lot of people that I know, um, they tend to view me as a, a good voice for kind of straddling the middle ground between the pro and the con ABA sides of the things, because I'm able to assess and understand both sides of the argument and both sides of, of what is increasingly now being defined as a conflict. And I mean, isn't that how almost everything is? There's in every profession, there's people who have, have had good experiences and bad experiences and I think the best thing that you can do to elevate a profession is, you know, get good people who want to do the right things for the right reasons, right? Mm -hmm. Education, you know, training. Uh, I, I don't, you know, know how well boycotting an industry really works, um, you know, and I, I just think that the, the, the middle ground should be where things are, you know, regardless of opinions on anything and always right there, you know, there's usually some level of a middle ground, right? No, absolutely. I mean, 
the funny, the funny and ironic thing is, is we three uh, people with with autism talk about this, is that we uh, coming from the di autistic disposition of dealing in extremes. It's funny to advocate the opposite to say that taking an extreme posture position on something. Normally, whether you're atypical, neurotypical, autistic, what have you, typically when you take an extreme position, typically speaking, it does not hold well. It leaves very little room for compromise. And I actually, um, by and large, through the majority of my life, I try to deal with things in moderation, um, mostly because I've lived the first half of my life um, living in, in extreme. So I try to temper that off and temper that out with taking moderate stances. But you're right, typically speaking, the middle ground is where it's at and the middle ground is where you're gonna make the most progress. But I would say though, um, as, a, as a warning that um, about boycotting an industry being ineffective or anything, um, given the fact that I have been on state government committees and given the fact that I have, that I network with people who testify and who have testified on to state committees and government bodies, never underestimate the power that one advocate voice can have, especially if you stack it up against the voice of a professional or, or an expert in a field. More often than not, the people who sit on that committee and the people who are on that government body will most likely side with a very emotional and powerful self-advocate over a well-informed and well-educated professional opinion. Well, it seems like that you want to be both, right? So that <laughs> then, they're, then you're unstoppable. Then there's no way they can't listen to you, right? So that's your plan to conquer the world. Um, <laughs> You brought up something that was on my list to ask you about, and that's being on state and government committees. And um, I just, I, as someone who serves on a, and I think that's how we met our mutual connection who introduced us, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, but being on a state committee, tell me what your experience is like, like the good, bad, ugly, and just, I, I think unless you serve on one, people... What it is is not what you might think it is. Well, so the funny thing was is that I was on a, a state committee with uh, in Tennessee that specifically dealt with disability, disability rights, disability advocates, and helping people with disabilities. So sadly, the the environment I was dealing with was fairly sterile. Um, you, the people that were neurotypical or quote unquote normal that were on the committee or part of the committee or worked with the committee were already very well versed and very well exposed to dealing with people who, uh, who have various degrees of disabilities, whether it's Down syndrome, physical disabilities, mental disabilities, cog um, behavioral disabilities, so on and so forth. They were very much supportive of everything we were doing and they allowed the advocates to lead the committee by and large. So ultimately um, my experience had been very good um, and very streamlined and again, probably very boring. I wish I was sitting on a committee where I was the only self-advocate or I was the only person that had a disability or something like that. So that way I could have the more fiery stump speeches 
and have it out more with the other colleagues and other committee members um, and actually have more of the fight worth fighting. Not to say that the work of committees that are specialized and staffed and are seated by disability advocates don't get the job done because they do. They absolutely do in some ways, in a lot of ways, they do that better than if you had it back in the old days, um, like in the eighties and before where it was actually staffed by mostly quote unquote normal people. But that being said, there are a lot of areas where having a voice and having a different voice on those committees um, would be beneficial, especially these days when typically speaking, people who are either autistic or who have a disability and they sit on certain committees, um, especially government appointed or state appointed committees, tend to be very apolitical. They tend to not have a truly liberal or conservative bend, or if they do, it does not play in so much as what you stereotypically think, um, especially these days um, where U.S. politics is so uh, muddled with partisan jerkatry. Yeah, I find, uh, and I've had some like good people come on the committee and they're like, why am I here? Not much is getting done. I'm like, you know, that's, that, that's how it works. It's, it's slow. It, it's hard work. It, it can be very frustrating too, especially like when there's not a good reason and there's a reason they call like office politics or social politics, because then there's real politics, right? Um, and, you know, trying to, be nice and please everyone is definitely not my strong suit, but you know, I, I do what I can. Um, so no, thank you for that. Um, for the, the advocacy there and, and learning and listening to others. So how does it make you feel to see the, the backlash ABA receives on social media? And what would you like others, other people to know about ABA that they won't learn on the internet? Oh my, that, that question is almost an entire different podcast episode in and of itself that I could give. I've, I've spent hours upon hours extorting and almost sermonizing, borderline preaching on that very question um, or various different degrees and variations of that question. Um, by and large, what I wish people in social media would understand is that, be, well, first it has to be, I'm gonna, before I can provide the exact answer to that, I have to put a little bit of background info is that most of the time when you see the people that are carpet bombing with comments on social media, be it Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whatever, whatever your social platform be, Typically speaking, these are people that fall into three, one of three categories, but they all tend to be lumped together on this same side of the argument of the conflict. The first are legitimate self-advocates. These are people that, like myself, either went through very particular 
um, versions of behavioral health treatments that were not good, that quite frankly, by today's standard would be unethical and that what you should, would, should have never been allowed to be conducted or implemented or even entertained. So a lot of the times the, this first branch, are, this first group are self-advocates that are coming to term with what they went through and when they hear that, oh no, that not only has this continued, there's more of it now and it's everywhere, then they feel that they need to speak out against it in their own way. And sometimes they either feel that they need or they, they have to join this, join this um, fight or they're pushed into it by one of the other two groups or by a loved one or a friend or someone else that says, hey, you went through this, you have to speak out against this. And they feel pressured into talking out against it. Um, the second group is, again, that, that fit loved one, that family member, that close family friend, that close friend that had someone in their life that either went through those um, that horrible ABA experience, or they were misinformed either by information online, or which is by and large where they mostly get their information from, or by someone else with a particular agenda, with a particular aim. And then they they get worked up by this and then they, they feel that they need to march, they need to fight, and they need to join the turn this almost into a crusade or some kind of war that uh, by and large those last two groups either receive their information online or they engage or they receive and digest misinformation that typically is found online, either from a story from a, from that they read online from a news article, from a website, or they take it from a website or an online source that does have one of these, these particular um, angles, these particular stances, these particular um, viewpoints when it comes to behavioral health. And, they, and it tends to be uncompromising and it does not tend to tell the full story of what ABA is and where ABA behavioral health has come. Like I said, the ABA that I experienced and that I was subjected to growing up is not the same behavioral health practice that is commonly used these days and that I myself personally did not implement. So um, by, and by the way, I have many uh, BCBA friends and many other practitioner friends that have had their, pra their practices, their online um, presence be subjected to these kind of attacks just simply uh, for posting something or just even starting up. So sometimes they just, oh, they start a Facebook page. They, um, they just start um, their profile. They start a tw Twitter handle. And then all of a sudden, either that same day or days after they're suddenly attacked without provocation. Yeah. Just simply for starting them up. Yeah, you just said the word ABA and it's over. It's pretty crazy out there. Yeah. Uh, you live in Morocco, right? We talked about I do. that. What I do. uh 
why <laughs> what what is autism <laughs> like <laughs> no, <I'm> why <laughs> it's cool what's autism like there uh, is it accepted what are the services but yeah why so, well so firstly let me first say that when i was here as a student i became enthralled with the with um with morocco again i if you want to drag religion into it, there was, again, like a divine plan, a divine purpose for me first going there. And ultimately, who, and I've been told this by family members, close friends, they, they, that have told me, Taylor, the person you were before you went to Morocco is not the person who came back. The person who came back is, by almost all stretches, a better person a more open person, a more congenial person, a person more willing to be engaged and um, more willing to uh, in get, interact with people and things like that, more willing to try new things. And a lot of that had to come with the fact that I was in, <laughs> I spent a year of my life living in a place um, that very much is a open society in the sense that they're very friendly, they're very welcoming, they're very warm, and they tend to be very personal, whether you like it or not. Um, and they want to know everything about you, and they want to interact with you, and they want to take you to lunch, take you to dinner, they want to bring you into their home to meet their family and to spend the night and have dinners and big family meals, enormous, delicious quantities of food, so on and so forth. They, It's a... It, because it's such an active society and such a social society, it's hard to come to come as a white American into autistic into a society like that, and you you have to compromise. It's like whether you like it or not, and the only you have you end up having to deal to deal with the society, and you end up. And actually, they they have a way of opening you up in the best way possible. So, and I think that, in, and again, that comes from that it's a very warm and open society, and they really are very persistent in their interactions with you. So, but by and large, that's actually what endeared me to it: is that the the culture, the society, the people are just very well, very warm, welcoming and open people. In fact, my fiance is Moroccan. So um, now that now that does not have any bearing on why it didn't have a total bearing on why I came back to Morocco. I want to state that right now. It wasn't the entire purpose, but I always wanted to return to Morocco, but it always came down to the very typical thing of when I had the time, I didn't have the money. And when I had the money, I did not have the time. So last earlier this year and I have a professor friend that has been my friend for eight long years and who I emailed with and engaged with pretty re uh, regularly over those years and would occasionally send me hey think about this or hey there's this job opening so on and so forth and occasionally I try my hat and I would get shot down but it just so happened that February of this year when there was a professorship open I decided, well, you know, uh, what the hell? Why not? Let's just give it a try. And turns out, upteenth time's the charm. So after a very long, rigorous interview process, I accept, I got, I was offered the job, I accepted the job, and I moved over here. 
Um, but to, that's the first half of the question. I don't think that's the part you wanted me to answer as much. But to generally speak about the autistic presence here, quite frankly, there is none. It's, there are some groups, there are some advocacy groups, but it is nowhere as, per, as permeated as it is in Western Europe or in the US or Canada or, or other parts of the world. It's still very much um, sort of stuck as it will to kind of put an American time frame on it. It's very stuck, it's very much stuck back in the mindset of the 40s through the 60s. So it's not necessarily that they don't talk about it. Awareness and understanding of it is at a bare minimum. They may have heard about it, but they don't necessarily know a whole lot about it. So in that sense, there's a whole lot of work to be done here. And in fact, actually, in addition to my professorship and the many wondrous opportunities that has provided me, considering the fact that this is not a plug, by the way, but it's, it's, I'm not plugging my university. But by and large, if you walk around Morocco and you say the name Alahawin University or AUI, as it's also known as, um, it's any Moroccan will tell you, or even many uh, Africans would tell you, it's amongst the best universities in Africa. And every Moroccan will tell you it's the best university in Morocco. So I, so I was very lucky to get one to attend here as an exchange student, but also now to be teaching here as a professor. Um, and, and it is the only Moroccan university that operates on a complete and 100% American educational model, um, which is why I'm allowed to teach here, more or less. But by and large speaking, it's my purpose here in Morocco kind of serves a dual purpose. One, I'm still just trying to make sure that I can get through my first semester in teaching. And then maybe after that, branch out, find some of these groups, talk to them and engage with them and interact with them and things like that. Um, and also once my Arabic gets a little better, sadly, I used to be almost conversational eight, seven or eight years ago. But then again, seven or eight years tends to dull your language skills when you when you never use it. So slowly, surely it's coming back to me. But again, it's seven or eight years is a lot of rust to knock off. So, but yes, more or less, it is not as permeated here as it should be. Yeah, hope it changes. I know that in a lot of countries outside of the US, it's, it's a problem. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm thinking about friends because that's where I'm from. Um, and it's you know until I hear about it how autism is talked about and what people know about autism in different countries, mm -hmm. it just seems so crazy to me that it's not the same as in the U.S. You know, um, so I hope we can change things slowly. Well, yeah. well especially in places where you would think that economic where economic standards should match societal right. or cultural progress. Again, if you look in some East Asian countries, I won't name names, but by and large speaking, they still have a centuries old stance, social stance towards not just people with autism, but just people with mental disabilities in general. But that's because it comes from a still very old honor-based viewpoint from a familial and social structure. And again, that does in a boggles the mind because if you look at some of these countries, 
they are, and you look at where they are economically, you would think that there would be social progress to match that economic progress. But sadly, as you, we have learned over the course of decades, economic progress is not linked and is actually exclusive and in some ways is isolated from from social and cultural progress. Look at your Soviet Union. That's a very good example of it. So question for you. I have an answer. Yeah, see? Um, You teach something called Mm -hmm. Foundations of Academic Success. That sounds about as made up as a lot of people's autism on the internet. Um, (laughs) What? (laughs) What the? What is Foundations of Academic Success? Well, I'm glad you asked. And honestly speaking, when I first heard it myself, I was a little stumped too. <laughs> it, honestly speaking, it did sound like some, it literally sounds as highfalutin in terms of a liberal arts educational term as you can possibly get. Uh, if you're thinking about a liberal arts higher education college course, that's about as high up there as you can you can get in terms of what could potentially be something that was just made up for the pure sense of making up because it's college. But realistically speaking, it actually does serve a purpose here. And truthfully, um, and it serves a purpose um, in terms of the Moroccan, in terms of this particular university, but also in some ways I would wish it would be taught um, elsewhere as well. Um, because purely what it is at its very basis as pun intended, it, at its very foundation, is that it is meant to be a course that serves as a bridge between the high school experience and the college experience. It is meant and designed to help freshmen or people within their first year of college to get accustomed to co- um, college from a college educational standard. Um, And this is especially true in the Moroccan, here in the Moroccan setting, because the Moroccan education system is about as different from the American model as you can get um, for a um, educational system that is modeled off of the French um, educational system. So a lot of these students, when they come to this university, they have no experience dealing with an American model education. That's why this course is a pass or fail course and it is one of several core classes that every student must take regardless and they have to pass it in order to graduate. So, and typically speaking, if you think back to when you attended college your first time and what your experiences and your feelings like that were, you probably wish that you might have had a course kind of similar to this that would have just helped you a little bit more, especially when the workload is much more than it was in, in high school your amount of ratings are exponentially more. As I tell my students, um, you're going from reading maybe at most 20 pages 
a week, a week or 20 pages a day for all of your classes total to over 100 pages for four classes in one day. So, and that's just for one day. You have to do that repeatedly throughout the week. And it can be daunting, especially if you've never had that experience before. But I like to think that my experience as a behavioral health technician and my years of behavioral health um, expertise and work has some, in some ways helped me and prepare me to teach this course. Because in a lot of ways, behavioral health by and large is the teaching of life skills. It's the teaching of someone with autism how to operate and how to cope and how to deal with a, a world that is not necessarily going to be conditional to you by and large. You have to learn to adapt. You have to learn to evolve. You have to learn certain degrees of flexibility because that's just simply how life is. As I often tell, as I often used to tell my clients and even clients who still reach out to me, clients that I haven't actually worked with for years still reach out to me and ask me, Mr. Taylor, which funny that, um, Andrew, that you mentioned earlier, it's Taylor Rob, not Rob Taylor. Um, my entire name is actually made up of various last names of my family. So even if you call me, called me Mr. Rob, Mr. Taylor, Mr. Cruz, you are technically correct, no matter how you say it. Um, <laughs> So um, they come and they ask these old clients, man, they come and ask me for advice and things like that. In a lot of ways, what I tell them is that you have to look at life like a game. It's a game with a set with different sets of rules. There are the rules that apply to everyone, the rules of life in general. You have to eat, you have to sleep, you have to breathe, so on and so forth. Your basic needs, these are tier one, tier two is society's rules that we can have a say in, but we must by and large abide by. And then below that is the rules of your family and your friends and your immediate circle that you more, you have the greatest degree of influence in. But you have to, you have to live with all of these different rules, all of these different sets of rules and only once you become an active player in the game of life can you influence those various rule uh, sets of rules. That's often what I find myself not just simply telling my clients, but even telling my now students. But no, by, to go back to the original question, Foundations of Academic Success is to help um, specifically these Moroccan students make the jump from high school to college in, to make sure they land on their feet and not on their face. That sounds pretty interesting. I'm still not sure I know exactly what you're doing, but that's something. Yeah, I had no idea yes. what you said, but I believe that you think you know what you're doing. And I think that's what matters. Yeah, I mean, I, I was, <laughs> I've only been spending about a, mo a month and a half, half teaching. So pretty much it's like teaching kids how to test take how to note take, how to look things up in a library, how, how to cite properly, these sort of things. Again, your most basic foundational skills for college that a lot of these students never develop because of the Moroccan education system. 
just to throw just to throw out a few things of what I teach them. In fact, I actually I just started teaching them how to test take on a college level because there's a there is a fundamental difference between how you would normally test take in a high school setting versus how you test take in a college setting. And that What's the difference? Uh, difficulty. Ultimately, it comes down to difficulty because um, you might have been a good test taker in high school, but you also have to know that your tests are far more lenient and not nearly as rigorous in high school as they are going to be in college because of the fact that in college, the amount of information you're being pummeled with on a day-to-day -day basis is far more than what you were having and being forced to deal with in high school. So when you have, so to put in perspective, and this is a callback to an earlier lecture of mine uh, last month, in high school, when you have a quiz, when your te teacher tells you we're getting ready to have a quiz, that quiz might be about, and let's use an English class for an example, that quiz will typically be about a chapter out of a book, out of a book you're reading or about the last week or two of class content. In college, typically your quizzes are less frequent, which means the ground that has to be covered is more than what it would have been prior. For example, next week, my uh, I have the second quiz that I'm giving my students, and that quiz is over two subjects that we've spent the last three weeks covering. So the amount of time, so it's a difference in time and information. Right. Yeah, that makes total sense. Cool. Yeah, so when that's yeah, I mean, again, it sounds kooky. Like I said, it when I when you hear that title of that course you probably think this is this is made up this can't be real what the hell is it and it, it is exactly that no it's it's just it, it makes total sense it's just that like i don't think about it as something that needs to be taught but when you put it in the context of you being in morocco and you know you're in that university that uses the american system and all of that it makes a lot more sense you know it's just yeah um Anyway, we are going to ask you some quick fire questions. Uh, basically, you tell me the first thing that comes to your head. I know it's really hard, but I think we can do this. No, we can do it. What is the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Um, smile and nod. What do you like to do to relax? Um, listen to music, watch, watch some YouTube videos. What's your favorite food? Normally, I don't deal in favorites, but here in Morocco, it's couscous. Oh, I love it, too. I, we get it a lot in France. Anyway, what's your favorite movie? Another favorite. <laughs> Normal. Um, I'll have to say for the moment, um, it has to be Waterloo. Um, it, it's a movie from 1970 first r-rated movie uh scream oh, actually no um was it scream or ferris bueller's day off ferris bueller's of day off rated r i don't know quick uh andrew quick google that I, there's me. no way there's no way hold on i mean i'm gonna look it up too 
Well, no, it's that. PG-13. Yeah. Never mind. I could have sworn if that movie, if that movie came out a couple of years earlier, it would be rated R. <laughs> I have, or at least a hard PG, a hard PG. But no, it was uh, probably Scream, maybe Conan the Barbarian. I've, I've never heard that movie again, Andrew. See, my movie You don't culture. know any movies. I mean, so I know Scream. I you don't have movie one. culture. So. Exactly. Well, my, my favorite point. musician wrote one of the songs for Scream, Red Right Hand, uh, Nick Cave and the Bad <laughs> Seeds. If you remember, Eileen, I know it's on your Spotify list already. So, again, sarcasm tag. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us, Taylor. If you want to tell people where they can find you on social media or anywhere else, now is a good time. You can find me on Facebook, it's just simply Taylor Rob, and that's pretty much all I've got. <laughs> um, cool. Awesome. Thank you so much for having us. No. Thank you for having me. <laughs> yeah. I think it's backwards. I think it's opposite. I Thank you for having us. <laughs> thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. <laughs> but I mean, thank no, you for thank having you us too. Glad, yeah. glad I could come. Glad I could come. Have a good one, Taylor. Have a good one. Thank you, thank you very much. Take care.